The Christian ought not be disillusioned into thinking that things are just randomly happening in this world. That when you see terrorism, that it's just a random terrorist attack. That when you see an assault, that it's just a random assault. That when you hear about someone defrauding millions of people, that it's just one person's character flaw. Or that when you see someone is leading a group of people astray, that when they are calling criminal activity now lawful, when they speak out of both sides of their mouth, that when they use deception, that it's just that person's heart or that person's personal motivations alone. Or that when someone promotes a false religion, that it's just their opinion. Jesus used the language describing the work of the kingdom of God that one should use their eyes to see. And for he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, chapter 6, verse 12, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. He's talking about spiritual armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, after his call to take up the whole spiritual armor of God to protect yourself and advance yourself into what God is doing in this world, what does he say? To stand firm. Why? Because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That is the state of our world. That has been the state of our world. This is the state of our world. These are not random occurrences. Because we are in the middle of a spiritual battle. The devil is at work and evil is at work to claim the lives of men and constantly bring chaos Division, opposition into our world. Let us see it. Let us know it. Let us call it out for what it is. That we might have eyes to see and ears to hear. exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis.
Good morning, my brothers and sisters. Welcome together to a time in God's Word. I want to start here at the beginning by saying that there is a disclaimer for Genesis chapter 19, that if you listen to these sermons with younger audiences, younger children, you will want to screen the sermons that have to do with chapter 19 first, as this gets into the sins of men and the wickedness of men. So just that disclaimer. I also want to mention the Patreon link for our fundraising platform here at the start. This is a humble ministry that has started just this year, back in January. And the fundraising link uh, just recently, a little over a month ago, you can visit that at patreon.com forward slash into the word ministries. Let's open in prayer, and then we'll be opening our Bibles to Genesis 19. O holy God, holy and set apart for righteousness, for purity, for the way to live, for the law, to have law and order and structure, because this is the way of godliness. Because our God who creates the law, who sets forth the law, knows the way of goodness and holiness and righteousness. O oh Lord, may we, your children, pursue you, that we might walk in your ways as you command us to do, that our eyes might be wide open to see what is good and what is evil in this world and to know that it is a spiritual battle. By your Holy Spirit, may we walk in holiness and righteousness and preach your gospel to this world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 19. We'll be starting in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. Then they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, 
so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. What do we see in this text? We see an evil, wicked, become violent mob who approach Lot's house because to him, they must, they must have always seen him rather as the outsider. They talk about it here as you are the sojourner and, and you are to be the judge. And they push back against him. Lot had chosen to make his home in the city of Sodom when he had split ways. We talked about this with Abraham because their families were so large, because their shepherds and their flocks were so large that there was not enough land for all of them to dwell peaceably and be able to graze among the lands. So Abraham and Lot had looked out and Abraham had given Lot the preference and said first, and he said, choose which way you will go. And Lot decided to settle and make his tent, it says, at Sodom. And it says all the way back then that when he did that, that Sodom was a city of wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Great meaning very much so sinners against the Lord. And we see displayed here in the text today exactly what that is and what that means. Because when you step away from God, but it's more so than that, when you turn your back on God, then freedom becomes a very evil thing. Freedom in the Lord is freedom to worship God. Freedom in the Lord is to worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, go and live your life. You can still make decisions about what to wear, perhaps where to live, perhaps how to conduct business, unless the Lord has told you otherwise. And you have freedom in the Lord if it's freedom unto the Lord. But when you turn your back on God... Freedom becomes a very evil thing. Because freedom is either all about you, or I do believe the default mechanism in the human heart then turns toward Satan. Let's go back to verse 1. Lot was sitting in the gate when the two angels arrived to the city in the evening. Why was he sitting in the gate? Not many people would sit at the gate, the entrance to a city. Was it because he loathed what the city was about and he preferred to be out front on the edge of the city rather than spend time inside the city? Was it because he had a feeling from God that God would be sending someone to him that evening? Scripture doesn't say, but... Perhaps he was waiting outside for their arrival. It could be. But the meeting of the angels with Lot as they were just entering the city is providential. And how do we see that Lot greets them? Well, it's in a very familiar way. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them. And then what does he do? It's right here in verse 1, following. 
But let's go back real quick and read from Genesis 18, at the start of Genesis 18. One chapter before, and the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, kneaded and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Now let's read. From today's text, Genesis 19, 1 through 3, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Why did Lot implore the two angels to stay the night in his house rather than the town square? Well, it's pretty evident. It's obvious. He knows the people of this city. He knows that they are wicked. He knows the evil that has permeated this city. So Lot knows the open streets of the city were dangerous probably any hour of the day, let alone at night. But let's look at his posture before the angels. Whether he knew they were angels, he knew somehow they were sent by God because of his response. He has a righteous posture before them, like that of Abraham before the Lord and the two angels a chapter earlier. They both bow themselves with their face to the earth. They both refer to themselves as your servant. They both have hospitality and safety, care, at the forefront of what they are doing. To come, to do not pass by your servant, to stay here, to stay in the house, to spend the night, to wash your feet, to eat. And they attend them. This is a hospitality. This is a care. This is a kindness. This is evidences of God's love in the hearts of Abraham and in the heart of Lot. Now let's look at verse 4. And think about this for a minute. All the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, and it says all the people to the last man. 
So this is all the men of the city of Sodom, including all of the people surrounded the house of Lot. Everyone except for Lot's immediate family was involved in surrounding the house. His family was inside the house. So this is everybody else in the city for what was about to happen. And we see also that all the men of the city had never met the two angels before or what they must have seen simply as two men. They had just arrived in the city perhaps an hour, two hours before. It said that Lot baked unleavened bread. Unleavened bread doesn't take very long. Leavening, the leavening, the rising of the bread, that's what takes longer. If you were to bake that, that would take a while. But unleavened bread was made quickly. Unleavened bread could be eaten rather quickly. So these, these angels to the city, to Lot's house, had been there a very short time. And yet, this mob that had formed in the street, this mob that had formed around Lot's house, they had surrounded his house, had started to become almost a riot. And then they were demanding that Lot turn over the two visitors so that they could sexually assault them. All of the men of the city. This is what Sodom had become. The men of the city were not just committing sin by homosexuality, but it was also about dominating them, forcing themselves on someone else, forcing themselves on someone they hadn't even known, forcing themselves on someone who had just arrived to the city, who were angelic visitors from God. This is what was going on in the city of Sodom. You know, in the order of creation, God created Adam, a man. And then he created Eve to be a helper fit for Adam. God, God has this structure. The men are to lead. The men are to lead their families. The men are to lead their church. The men are to lead their communities. And we look at the city of Sodom, and this is how the men of the city behaved. The only, well, there was no leadership. The only focus of the men was wickedness, was embracing evil. Let's read this again from verses four and five. But before they lay down for the night inside Lot's house, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot from outside. They were still outside. Lot was inside. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him. And what does he say? What is Lot's response? He's trying to diffuse the situation. He says, 
I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Lot is direct in his correction of the men's desire. He says, do not act so wickedly. That part, I believe, is from the Lord, and he is speaking truth into the darkness. He is speaking truth unto wickedness. He was trying to correct men who are wayward while there is still time on earth to repent. This is a good thing. This is a God thing. We must be promoting and proclaiming God's truth and God's love and God's correction unto those who are living lives of wickedness and unto each other in Christ because all of us still struggle with sin. So in love and in grace and with compassion, let us approach each other so as to correct one another as iron sharpens iron for the benefit of God's glory, for the benefit of our holiness, for the benefit of our joy in the Lord. He says, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. And then Lot goes completely off the rails. He must have felt completely overwhelmed at this point by the mob, I would presume, for there's no other reason in anyone's mind to ever say anything like this in verse 8. Ever. He says, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Obviously, it was in his mind an attempt to dissuade the mob from harming the two angels. But it was obviously a completely monstrous and sinful thing to say. Life is sacred. Life is beautiful. God has created all in the image and the likeness of God. And we are to do everything to protect the lives of those of our family, especially our wives and our daughters. Lot failed here. Greatly so. And we all fail in many ways. And the men of the city did not take him up on that language. So what is the mob's reaction? We pick it up in verse 9. They said, stand back. They had nothing to do with what Lot said. They don't want correction. They're not interested whatsoever in Lot's daughters. They act with rebellious hearts. And what do they say? They said, this fellow, they're talking to each other now, this fellow came to sojourn, to wander, to to be a visitor among us, to live among us for a time. And he has become the judge 
Now we will deal worse with you than with them. They're talking a lot now. We will deal worse with you than with them. And we already talked about what they wanted to do to the two angelic visitors. Then they pressed hard against the man lot. They advanced against him and drew near to break the door down. They were not going to let Lot stand in the way of their wickedness. They were not going to let Lot stand in the way of their aggression of what was in their hearts to do, as evil and vile and dark as it was. The mob makes violent threats against Lot. What does it mean when they said, now we will deal worse with you than with them? We already know what they wanted to do to the other two. Does this mean to a greater extent of sexual assault that they will do unto Lot later? Or is it simply that they intended to kill him? This is what the city of Sodom had become. Thank God. God was there and God was about to act. Verse 10. But the men, this is the two angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. God creates a solid barrier now between those who are protected and those who are outside in evil and darkness. And the angel struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. We read back in verse 4 that the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man had surrounded the house. And now, in verse 11, they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great. This could have been everybody. We're now blind and didn't have their sight. They couldn't see God. To know God, to acknowledge God, to worship God, to be holy unto God, to pursue righteousness unto God, to live a lifestyle of repentance of sin, to honor God. They did not have eyes to see. And now they literally did not have eyes to see because God had removed their sight. They were struck with blindness. They couldn't even find the door. This is God's intervention. You know, in the last chapter, Abraham had petitioned God to not destroy the righteous along with the wicked. In chapter 18, verse 25, and the two angels of God had now gone into the corrupt city of Sodom on a rescue mission to find the righteous and to get them out. But the men of the city, they didn't want to be accountable to anyone. They accused Lot in verse 9 we just talked about. This fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge? Stand back. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. They didn't want to be accountable to Lot. 
They didn't want to be accountable to anyone else who entered their city and told them what to do. Do you know anyone who doesn't want to be accountable to anyone else? Who lives their life in a manner to not be accountable to anyone else? Anyone who takes this position in life is in danger of hell and of God's judgment. Because living a lifestyle of obedience to God requires submission. You are submitting yourself to God's authority. You are living your life accountable to God, to God's law, to God's word, to the lordship and the kingship of Jesus Christ, the Savior and the King. You are submitting yourself to God's authority. And we were created, all men and all women were created to live under someone else's authority. And it's not just someone else as to say anyone else, no. But the problem with pride, the pervasive problem with personal pride is that you puff yourself up and you put this personal defense around you so that you do not think you need anyone else, so that you do not rely on anyone else, you are going to take care of yourself and you can just go out and live the life that you want to live accountable to no one. And there's nothing more dangerous on this earth than that. We were created by God to glorify God, to obey his commandments, to live in worship of God as to say, God, you are the authority over me. I am going to live under your authority, under your correction, under your instruction, under your leadership. You tell me what to do. I'm not making up my own rules. I'm not making up my own religion. I'm not making up my own version of Christianity. I'm not going to presume that I know religion better than anyone else. I am looking to the Lord. Even for those parts of the scripture that I don't fully understand, I am going to trust the Lord. I'm not going to cut it out of my Bible like some men have done because they had problems believing certain parts of the Holy Bible that we have today. And they said, perhaps I don't understand the miraculous works of Jesus Christ, or I don't believe the miraculous works of Jesus Christ. Therefore, get out the scissors, cut that out. Okay, now I've got what I believe. No. That is extremely dangerous. That is heresy. That is opposition to God, and that is not obedience to God. That is not submitting to God's authority. You are not glorifying God in that. And God will not say on the final day, well done, good and faithful servant, with that. God is looking for people. God is longing for people. The none should perish, but that all should have eternal life. And that means submitting yourself to God's authority. But this life is not just us versus other people. 
It's not us as humans who believe in God against simply other people. As to say that this other person is just living their life the way that they want to live their life, and it's really just me, and it's them, and it's this person over here, and this other person. No. What do we read in Romans 8? For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. The men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, small and great, did not set their mind on God. So what did they set their mind on? They set their mind on the flesh in Romans 8 says this is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit of God is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But it's not just human to human. The actions of one man are not just the actions of one man if they are against the law, if they are what we would say against God. 2 Peter 2 verse 5 says, If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when God brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. The men of Sodom had rejected God, and there is a fiery judgment for those who reject God. Lot perhaps thought the men of the city were still capable of changing. He tries to correct them. In patience, he lives among them, I guess, for he was still righteous, but what a place to live when you are severely outnumbered by wickedness. But the events in today's text confirm to the angels who went to examine the city, what will soon be carried out by God's power. The angels knew what was going to happen. And each person who is alive today is still within the age of grace. There is still time to repent of your sin and to turn away from sin and trust in Jesus as the personal Lord and Savior for your life. Because no one is guaranteed tomorrow. It matters how you live your life. It matters how your mind thinks and what your mind thinks about. 
Because what your mind thinks about is what you pursue after in your heart. It matters what you pursue after in your heart. Because what is in the longing of your heart is what you value the most. That's either for God or that's for evil. Because the things of this world will translate toward glorifying Satan, materialism, jealousy, division, chaos, war, terrorism, death, assault, criminal behavior. All of these do not glorify God. And God calls us out to live differently. God calls us out to live in holiness and righteousness unto him. God says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So are we loving God? And what do I mean in that? I mean, are we obeying his commandments? That's the real question. But I start with, are we loving God? Because God says, this is how I feel. This is how I recognize. This is how I confirm your love for me. We all know people in our lives who have said that they love us. But how have they shown it? You can say something and you can truly not mean that in your actions, by the evidence of your actions. God says, I need the words and I need the actions. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It says in the book of James. Let us love God. Love God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And let us recognize the people every single day are dying and going to hell. And hell is eternal. And hell is punishment unending. And hell is apart from God. May we have a compassion, an undying compassion for those who do not know God, who do not glorify God, who will not confess God, who will not live their lives in glory to God. And may we pursue them in love. May we pursue them in compassion. May we pursue them because of God. Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should have eternal life. But it requires each person to make their own decision unto that. Unto God, you cannot save your children. You cannot save your parents. God saves you. But each individual has to make the decision. You have to decide for yourself. Do I want God more than anything else? Not only will he be on the throne of my life, but he will be the one who directs my life. He will be the one that I look to for instruction for how to live my life. He will be the one that I look to to navigate unknown waters in my life. 
when I get into a challenging situation, when I get into an open situation, I'm going to look to him and to his word for how to navigate that best unto glorifying him. When I get into the toughest valleys of trial and temptation and suffering, I'm going to look to him because God directs my life. And then God becomes more and more and more important to you. He fills up more and more and more of your mind. He fills up more and more and more of your heart. He fills up more and more and more areas of your life. And your joy gets magnified more and more and more. Tell the things of this world you can see very clearly for what they really are. Tell the voices you hear, you can hear because you have ears to hear. Let's pray. Lord God, loving and great, holy and set apart, righteous and true. In this world of darkness, in this world where men and women are pursuing their own way, which defaults to the way of Satan and darkness and evil. Please, Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That we might see and know where God, you are working. That we might see the evidences of the kingdom of God on this earth and the work of your church and the work of your kingdom and join you in that work that we might go forth and proclaim your love to a dying world. And God, please give us clear eyes to see and ears to hear where evil is working so that we can go on a rescue mission and proclaim your truth to this world, that we can proclaim repentance as the way to have true life, that the world would know that the world would see, that the world would change from their wicked ways and glorify you, God. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Join me next time as we continue in Genesis chapter 19.